as we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we hit uh, Isaiah chapter 54 uh, for our text this evening. Isaiah 54. Um, one of the more amazing stories of old is the, the dramatic story of mutiny on the bounty. And, um, and it's, there's old movies and the book is pretty interesting to read, you know, about the mutiny and the mutineers of, uh, of, of this uh, British vessel, you know. Um, but um, the, the story kind of ends where the mutineers with a bunch of Tahitian people settle on this little island, you know, Pitcairn Island, which is, was just a nothing island at that time, but it was two miles long, one mile wide, and they just kind of had to settle there because they couldn't go back to England after being a mutiny, uh, a part of a mutiny. And, um, and it was a horrible place uh, where there was all kinds of sin and debauchery and, and it was horrible. Um, and the, the, the fighting and the disease and the uh, alcohol and all that stuff pretty much wiped most of the people out. There was actually only one guy left. His name was John Adams. Not the, the John Adams, uh, you know, from early American history, but a different John Adams. But he was there on Pitcairn. He was the last man alive there. And the rest were women and children. And it was pretty much, they were all going to die. But they found the Bible from the ship, the Bounty. Uh, the Bounty's Bible. And he thought, boy, I, I better read this book. And so he read the book. And while that island was a horrible place, uh, he, after reading the Bible, accepted Christ and believed in the scriptures. And he started sharing that with the people that were there. And they had a few more children. And then that, the island kind of kept going. But it ended up being actually almost uh, the opposite of what it began as an island of sin and debauchery. It became sort of, sort of this um, Christian island of just Christian people. And even to this day, there's still remnants of the people of Pitcairn Island. Uh, to this day, there's the re remnant of those Christian people and families. I, I was thinking about that in, the, you know, what the Bible can do. The power of the book that's in our hands tonight can change lives and can change people's direction. And you know, I've seen that in so many stories, but even in my own story with my own family and how the Bible has uh, changed our lives. And so I'm so thankful that we have a congregation that's willing to, you know, hit the scriptures and study the word and, and look at what the Bible has to say. Uh, you'll never regret spending time in God's word. So uh, that's, that's what we're doing tonight. Chapter 54, we're, you know, we're actually getting close to the end of Isaiah, so uh, pretty cool stuff. Now, we have sort of a trio of chapters here. Um, they kind of go in this little packet deal. So that's my hope is to get through 54, 55, and 56 tonight. Um, 54 is salvation for Israel. Uh, chapter 55 deals with salvation for the Gentiles. And chapter 56 is Gentiles are included in Israel's blessings. Now, um, one thing I want you to look at the top of some of these pages, maybe like over chapter 54, 55, You'll notice there's these little um, titles that the translators put in there to kind of explain what's happening in the Bible. Um, now, those aren't inspired words. The, the, all the Bible words are all inspired by God. But these are, you know, in this case, Cambridge Cameo Bible from Cambridge University back in, you know, the King James uh, kind of day. They put this, uh, this title, The Church is Comforted. Now, you have to be careful with these because um, back in those days, they thought that the church had replaced Israel, replacement theology. We've talked about that a lot. So whenever it's curses, uh, the translator says, curses upon the Jews and upon Israel. And then whenever it's blessings, they say blessings upon 
uh, you know, the church. And they, they only take the blessings, they don't take the curses. And that's not honest, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have to kind of be careful about that one. Tonight, however, the Gentiles will be included and the church is sort of foretold um, a little bit in this and, and it's kind of cool. We do get included. So chapter 54, like I said, uh, is, uh, you know, salvation for Israel. Chapter 55, salvation for Gentiles. Chapter 56, the Gentiles are included in Israel's blessings. So let's take a look. In fact, chapter 54 divides nicely into little chunks as well. So we'll kind of outline this for you. Um, verse one, it says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud that thou didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth curtains of thine inhabitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities be inhabited. The first section of this, you can jot down point number one, I guess, of chapter 54 is Israel's growth numerically. But not just numerically, you might even say spiritually, their growth, numerically and spiritually. Um, it says, you know, e even though you've been barren, sing. And we talked about this last Sunday, by the way, uh, to sing during times, to stretch ourselves during difficult days, um, to strengthen our stakes uh, and to seek the Lord. That's what we talked about last Sunday from this passage. Um, and those are all true and important things. In the context of this chapter, the Lord said, I'm gonna broaden the people of Israel. Um, it's interesting to watch how the Lord has blessed, even in my lifetime, the Jewish people. Um, and the Lord is expanding and strengthening Israel. Uh, coming up in our next prophecy update. By the way, did you notice in our last prophecy update, I was talking about how, um, you know, the UAE peace deal with Israel, and I said more peace deals are coming. And I mentioned Bahrain, and they just signed that just like yesterday. Um, so it's amazing to watch these, these peace treaties. And, um, and one of the things that we have um, told you about in Bible prophecy is one of the, the parts of the last days, knowing that we're at the end times, is when Israel is in a time of peace and prosperity. That's a sign of the last days. I hope you know that that's the way it rolls. Some people say, Brett, I, why are things getting better in Israel? Shouldn't it be getting crazier? Not necessarily. Read Ezekiel 38. It says that it's times of unwalled cities and everybody's dwelling in peace and safety. And Israel is powerful and, and doing well. Man, that's where they are now. And that's where... Um, the stage is being set, I believe, for the Ezekiel 38, 39 invasion the Bible talks about. So we talked about that. If you missed the last prophecy update, check that out. We talked a little bit about that. But we're going to see more nations, I think, signing on. And what's interesting is we know which nations won't sign on uh, because those are the nations in Ezekiel 38 that are going to attack Israel. And it's, it's, it's dividing exactly like Ezekiel 38 says. The friendly nations are, are signing on with peace treaties right now with Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, and they're signing peace deals. Uh, the, the nations that are listed as the attackers in Ezekiel 38, they're all enemies of Israel and becoming more and more so every day. Uh, Turkey, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Russia, and um, Sudan, and some of these others. So we're seeing that, but... But here's the thing that's interesting is to watch Israel prosper is really a fulfillment of what Isaiah 54 is saying, that, that they're going to broaden their borders, strengthen their stakes. The Lord would do that. 
for the Jews. And uh, he'll even talk further about that. But there is a hint of the Gentile church that's mentioned here. Um, one of the things we need to remember is that um, Israel is called in the Old Testament, the wife of God. The church, the Gentile church in the New Testament is called the bride of Christ. You need to know that differentiation. And there, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, teaching that goes along with that. You know, um, if you read the book of Hosea, you know, there was the uh, woman named Gomer who was a prostitute who married Hosea the prophet. And she continued to prostitute herself. And, and, and uh, the Lord said, stick with Hosea, or stick with Gomer, Hosea. Don't, don't leave her and take her back over and over again. And the reason God had that whole thing happen in the book of Hosea is because God wanted to say, that's what Israel has done to me. My wife, Israel, has been unfaithful to me, God. And that was a picture. And all through the Old Testament, there's that picture. But the Lord will not divorce Israel. That's, that's what replacement theology says. Um, but we are going to see the Lord is going to uh, be separated from Israel for a season. Um, and we'll see that coming up here too. But in addition, the Lord says, you know, sing, O barren. Um, and it says, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Um, this, I believe, is a hint. And I wouldn't die on this battlefield, by the way. This is something that I believe to be true. But you'll read different things. Different scholars say different things about this. But it could be that the, the, the ones that have more children are the desolate. That'd be the Gentiles. And we've been adopted sons and daughters. We've been grafted. Gentile people have been grafted into the vine of the Jews, if you would. And so um, we've been prolific. There's been a lot of Christians, millions and millions of Christians over the centuries who've come to Christ and we've been grafted in. More are the children of the desolate. That would be us, the Gentiles maybe. Um, and then um, we will be enlarged, you know, it says. And then, then it just very overtly says in verse three, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Why would the Jews ever want to inherit Gentiles? The answer, they wouldn't. They never wanted that. Even to this day, the Jews don't really want to be a part of the Gentile church largely or uh, be linked to the Gentiles in any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> in Bible times, you know, many times the Jews would say stuff like, Gentiles exist to be fuel for the fires of hell. That was the way the Jews looked at the Gentiles. Um, one thing you'll notice is Jews don't go around evangelizing. There's no evangelism in Judaism. Uh, that doesn't happen. There's some weird cult sort of ones like uh, Kabbalah and some of these other things that are sort of cult versions of twisted Judaism. But, but really, real Judaism, has, there's no evangelism. There's no trying to bring people in. It's kind of like us four and no more. That's, that's what Judaism sort of teaches. But the Lord's saying, I'm going to bring the Gentiles in. Uh, and we will. And read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. and explains the whole thing very clearly there in those three chapters. <clears throat> so this first section speaks of the expanding you know, Israel's growth numerically, but also spiritually that the Lord would take care of them. Verses four through eight here speaks of Israel's regathering. Remember, they would be scattered over all the earth and then they would be regathered by the Lord. Let's read. It says in verse four, fear not for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded for thou shalt not put, be put to shame for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall be called, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken, 
and grieved in spirit as a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Again, I love this because the Lord is saying exactly what he has done. You say, well, Brett, I have a problem with what you just read. The Lord is gonna forsake them for a little while. He's forsaken them for like 19 centuries. Uh, you know, if you know the way it all shakes out, by the way, the Jews were, in fact, the Lord blinded their eyes and he lifted up his hands of protection from the Jews, just like he said he would. The Bible says, you know, that all throughout the Old Testament law, if you forsake me and break my statutes, commandments, and covenants and worship other gods, then you're gonna be on your own, the Lord said. It's an if-then statement. If you do this, then this is gonna happen. And so the Lord said, I will scatter you over all the nations of the world. And the Lord promised that if the Jews would rebel against the Lord. And so the Jews did that. And so what happened? Well, it led to that most probably important date of Israel ceasing to exist. It was during the Roman Empire. Um, of course, Israel was trounced by you know, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Medes and the Persians, all these people came trouncing through that region. But ultimately it would be the Roman Empire in AD 70 when Titus, the Roman general, would you know, crush Jerusalem and drive the Jews eventually just totally out of Israel. And they were scattered. It's called the diaspora. It's what God says, I will scatter you. And, and that's what the Lord is saying here. The language here is, is interesting where he says, for a small moment, verse seven, have I forsaken thee? Um, you know, it says that. Um, and uh, it says uh, in verse eight, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. Um, now you say, well, Brett, 19 centuries is not really that much of a moment. In the context of Bible prophecy, how much does a day equal with the Lord? If you remember when Peter talks about the last days, he says a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years with the Lord is as a day. And so, you know, when it comes to the Lord's economy, he has scattered his people for a couple days. That, that's really not even two full days. Um, but now he's regathered them, which should tell us, you and me as Gentiles, we're living in the last days as he's regathered his people in Israel. They become a very mighty nation in the world today, all fulfilling prophecy from the Bible. No other nation in the world's history has been uh, scattered all, all over the world. Um, most of them all either cease to exist altogether and become extinct as a people group, or they become uh, assimilated into the other you know, nations where they were scattered. Not so with the Jews. They kept their identity as a people, and their language was restored, and their nation was rebirthed in May 14th, 1948. And so with all that said, you know, the Jews are quite a miraculous people and they speak of God and his power. And, and here's the Lord saying, I, I have forsaken you, but for a moment. This should shut the mouths of all those people that say God is done with the Jews and he doesn't have a plan or a purpose for the Jews. This should shut all those mouths when the Lord says, yeah, I will forsake you for a while, but for a little while, for a moment. Then I will, by my great mercy, verse seven, will I gather thee. Um, look at the end of verse eight, with everlasting kindness, well, I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy redeemer. The Lord is merciful and his mercy endures forever. And I hope you see that both in the Jewish people, how God has regathered them and he's got a plan for them and a purpose for the Jews. 
but also that you see that in your own life. You know, the Lord's mercy doesn't change to the Gentiles. When he goes from Jews to Gentiles, his mercy is the same. His mercy is unending. His mercy endures forever. I hope you know that. You might feel distant from God. You may feel like you've failed God, like the Jews failed God. And we do. The Gentiles, we, we're just as sinful, uh, you know, if not worse than the Jewish people. But praise the Lord, his mercy never fails. And um, that's, that's what we see here. The Lord speaking to his people, the Jewish people, that, man, my mercy is for you. Um, I love that. Um, man, I've got those marked. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy upon thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Uh, verse five, just a quick reminder, for thy maker is thine husband. That's the Jews. We talked about the Jews being called the wife of God. This is one of those passages where that is made clear. The church is the bride of Christ. So let's keep all that straight. That's important. Now we've seen so far in verses one through three, we've got you know Israel's growth numerically. Um, we've got number two, Israel's regathering, verses four through eight. But then we go into uh, number three, Israel's security. The Lord's gonna speak to that in verse nine and 10. It says, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace that uh, be removed, saith the Lord that has mercy upon me. Um, by the way, uh, some people try to say, uh, you know, the critics of the Bible, that the Noah's flood was a local flood. It wasn't a global flood. That's, they say that's just biblical hyperbole, hyper, hyperbole but it's not. Um, it says right here, um, I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. The Bible doesn't say anything other than that, that the Bible tells us the flood of Noah was global. Um, there's interesting evidence that scientists, uh, so-called, like to sort of ignore about a global flood. And uh, um, there are some interesting works that have been done on that uh, and some people that are real scientists. I remember we used to take a bunch of our... Um, uh, younger people up to Mount Ashland, right next to the freeway. There was some uh, place where they cut out for the highway. But you can go and look at the fossils right there. And there's little fossils of fish and shells and seashells and stuff. And, and Mount Ashland's like, like close to 5,000 feet above sea level. So how did those get up there? And, and there's some interesting questions about, some people say, well, the plate tectonic shifted and pushed the mountains up. Um, yeah, but there's other th uh, theories about a global flood would have caused uh, all kinds of weird fossils to be found at different elevations and different creatures found on different places of the earth uh, from a global flood. Um, but remember, the, there's a great book, Henry Morris's The Genesis Record is a great book on that kind of stuff. It'll wet your whistle if you're looking for more information on that. But here the Lord says, like Noah's day, uh, uh, you know, the, the earth was flooded, but I'm not gonna forsake my people. I'm gonna preserve them. Noah, by the way, in the flood is a picture or a type of the Jews being saved during the, the time when the world goes through tribulation. Um, now, uh, the picture there is perfect, by the way, because where's the Gentile church gonna be during the tribulation? I believe firmly that it's gonna be up in heaven with the Lord. We're gonna be taken out. Who was taken out before the flood, uh, who was taken out of the world without dying? It was a guy named Enoch. 
the Lord loved him and saw that he walked with God and he pleased God. And so he just took Enoch up to heaven. Then the flood came and then Noah and his family made it through the flood safely. And I believe all that's a picture of what's gonna happen. And there's a correlation and that's what this passage is making to the end with the Jews. God's gonna, even though the mountains are gonna be removed, God's gonna preserve the Jews through that time called the tribulation period. Um, the church is not gonna be there because we'll have been raptured, taken up. First Thessalonians chapter four, those which are alive and remain shall be caught up and meet him in the air. And that's where we ever get to be with the Lord from that day forward. So all these pieces, by the way, fit together perfectly. Um, one of the things I need to add, and I say this from time to time, but it's important. Uh, you'll not see a lot of Bible, through the Bible teaching churches, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. You won't see churches that also are into talking about Bible prophecy. Because the theology of a lot of churches that are more topical, they, they either don't care about end time stuff and they just avoid those passages altogether. But I'd say there's even maybe a little more of a problem of honesty in that it's really hard to teach verse by verse through the Bible and, and not have a, a pre-trib, uh, you know, pre-trib pre rapture view of the Bible because you have to cover the whole Bible. And there's too many things. There's too many things like even this passage that are confirming what the rest of the Bible says. And you can't go through the Bible without dealing with some of these subjects. Um, it's really hard to make everything figurative and not literal. And that's why some, like most of those churches, they won't go verse by verse. It's too dangerous theologically. They hit landmines that kind of disrupt their teaching uh, that doesn't fit their, their, you know, their model. Um, that's why I love the full counsel of God. Paul said to the church there, the Ephesus elders, he said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And um, I think it's the verse by verse, chapter by chapter Bible teachers who they've got to, they're the ones who have to make sure that what they said last week fits with what they said a year ago or a year from now. And it all has to fit together. When you don't teach through the Bible, you can kind of finagle that stuff. And I, I'm not sure it's even really that honest, quite frankly. So I love verse by verse Bible. That's why we're gonna stick with that. But the Lord's gonna secure Israel even during those days when the mountains will depart, the hills will be moved, but the Lord's kindness will not depart from the Jews during that time. So that's the third one, Israel's security. Israel's regathering and Israel's, um, you know, growing or, uh, you know, expanding uh, growth numerically. So those are the first three. One more section of this chapter Verses 11 through 17 is Israel's peaceful future. Let's read. It says, um, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors. Some of your translations say antimony, which um, is like a white color that's used for makeup <laughs> in uh, cosmetics. Um, and it says, lay thy foundations with sapphires. He's saying, you know, you're tossed with tempest, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make these beautiful stones come together. Verse 12, and I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and, the, uh, and great shall be the peace of thy children. So even though the Jews have had a tempestuous time and, and uh, you know, had very brutal years uh, throughout the ages. The Jews have been treated as bad as any people group. Um, you know, it's interesting because while we deal with racism 
here in America. And it's, and, and that, man, racism is so ugly and evil for sure. But I have to say, you know, racism even in America is, is uh, you know, against, um, you know, different, you know, ethnicities and what have you. It's, it's a, a problem that needs to be fixed. But I would argue that the Jews, their, you know, the racism that's been against the Jews has been worse than any others. And I'll tell you why. Because there's been no other people group that have said, let's just exterminate that people altogether. Let's just kill them all. Um, and that's what has happened to the Jews several times throughout history. You know, that was Hitler's final solution to get rid of all Jewish people and kill them all. He killed six million um, in trying to do that. Um, that's, that's the most extreme vile. So, so be careful, all, all the people that say, we have a bad worse than anybody else in the world. The Jews have had it pretty bad. And uh, the Lord says, don't worry, I'm gonna save you. And you say, well, what's with all these gems and stones and stuff there? Well, there's a couple things that you might think about. One is when the Lord sets up his kingdom, he's gonna make it beautiful. That's one theory of all, why all these stones are talked about, these beautiful sapphires and what have you. Um, the most beautiful thing that in Bible times you could think of pointing to, they say, the Lord said, that's what I'm gonna do for the Jew. Uh, they're gonna be in a time, place of beauty. Others say, no, this echoes back to the Urim and the Thummim. The what? Yep, the Urim and the Thummim. Remember the breastplate of the priest? He had these same stones and sapphires and what have you embedded in his breastplate. And it was really a mysterious thing of the Old Testament where the Lord would use those stones to speak to the people of Israel. And uh, there have been people who've actually written books about this uh, description of these stones and the, the Urim and the Thummim of the priest of the Old Testament. Um, but uh, that, that's a theory as well, that the Lord's saying, I'm gonna guide you. Uh, and I thought that's what these stones could be speaking of, either guidance or the, you know, the millennial kingdom when Christ rules and the Jews will be given great peace and great blessing. He goes on in verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established, Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the, the smith, or the blacksmith, that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the, uh, the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So up at the top of my page it says, the church is comforted. Uh, now, is that true or false? Well, the answer is yes and no. This is speaking to the Jew. Um, the Jewish people are gonna be comforted and blessed and no weapon that will be formed against them will not prosper. But you, you say, have to say, well, Brent, didn't you say we are grafted into the vine? Yes. This verse 17, I've heard uh, Gentile Christians, name it and claim it, man. For no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. You've heard that before, some of you. And you know, it, it is true because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, they're for the tearing down of strongholds. There's a, there's a protection and a blessing the Lord wants to give to his people, um, whether that's, we're talking about the Jews or the Christians. So we, we can apply this verse to our lives, but really only because the Lord has adopted us in to the people of God. 
We're the children of God, adopted sons and daughters. But I love that verse 17. That's worth memorization. You know, um, there's so much here. There's the no weapon that's formed against thee shall prosper. Um, uh, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, shalt, thou shalt condemn. And I love it. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. What is it? And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. What a key word. And this is where the Jews have struggled. They try to find the righteousnesses of the temple and temple sacrifice, lambs being slaughtered on the altars there in Jerusalem. But those things were merely pointing to the Lord who is their righteousness. And in New Testament Gentile church, we, we understand this because of Paul's writings when he teaches us about imputed righteousness. He is our righteousness. The reason we go to heaven is because he is righteous. That's how we're saved, by his doing. Nothing we've done to deserve it ourselves. And so the Jews should have picked up on that, even from their own book of Isaiah, that the righteousness is not of their own. They, they have no righteousness. Remember Paul said, there's no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's his righteousness by which we're saved. We're robed in his righteousness. Isaiah is gonna tell us here in a few chapters. So um, this is a, a, a New Testament theme, but it's brought up to us here in the Old Testament here in Isaiah. I love, I love how New Testament the book of Isaiah is. By the way, don't forget, remember we talked about the 66 chapters of Isaiah sort of matches the 66 books of the Bible. And that's why this section we're in right now is so New Testament-y. <laughs> you know, uh, chapter 53, we saw the suffering savior, Jesus dying on the cross. I mean, it was a detailed description of how Jesus suffered. It's New Testament, and that's the section we're in. So that's why we're seeing all these themes. The Lord is our righteousness. That's a New Testament theme. Uh, that, that's very Romans, you know, the righteousness that we have in Christ. Um, but it's spoken of here by the prophet Isaiah so exactingly. I love how the Bible fits together so perfectly. You'd think with 40 different authors, over a 1500 year period written on three different continents, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, you'd think that there'd be just a miss somewhere. That somewhere the Bible would just contradict itself so much that doctrinally it just wouldn't hold. But the reason it does hold and the reason it does fit perfectly like a puzzle piece that makes a beautiful picture of salvation is because it's a miraculous book written by God through the hand of man. It's a beautiful, inspired book that we have here. And I just, I just find my heart leaping when I see how exact the word of God really is. So all that to say, chapter 54 um, is, is salvation for Israel. I love that. But now in chapter 55, we're gonna see salvation for the Gentiles. We saw that hinted of in chapter 54, but let's see what chapter 55 says. Um, it's, it starts out with this beautiful invitation. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and, you that, uh, and, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. <laughs> I love that. Life verse right there, delight your soul. Well, it's, it's your soul actually, that's the problem. Uh, but see, that's the thing, spiritually people are hungry. And the, the Lord starts out this chapter, oh. now what's this ho thing? 
ho, 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 are suddenly Santa Claus here in, in chapter 55 of Isaiah, uh, verse one? Ho, well, the word is oi, like when a Jew would say oi vey, like oi vey, you've heard that. It's like, it's sort of an exclamation. Most of the time, it's a negative exclamation, like, oh, brother, like, what's, I can't believe this is happening, oi vey. But it's that first bite, oi. But in this case, it's, it's marveling <coughs> an exclamation of, wow, don't miss this. Hoy vey, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come, buy and eat for, it's not gonna cost you anything, it's gonna be free. And you can delight your soul in fatness. What a glorious invitation this is. The Lord wants us to be full and fed spiritually. He wants our souls to be full. You know, um, I wonder if there's some of you that are kind of depressed right now because of the gloominess of the smoke that's filled Oregon and California and Washington. You know, um, we have the worst air quality in the world and we have for over a week now. Um, you know, the grayness, or it's kind of a pale yellow ugliness. Um, and maybe you're just tired of the coronavirus and lockdown. Maybe you're just weary of all the stuff that's, that's you know, going on with politics and misinformation and lies and all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> you know, I would almost say this is a word for you. Ho, oy vey, everybody. Everyone that thirsts, come ye to the water. Where's the water? Jesus said, you know, if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. Out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. Come ye, buy and eat. Um, why do you spend your money on stuff that's not real bread? That's what it says here. Jesus is the bread of life. And as we eat of Christ, we find our souls satisfied. That's the way you are gonna get through this dark day that we're living, is to eat and drink of the Lord, that your soul be filled with fatness and satisfied. That's what we need. What a good verse for us tonight. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the water. He that hath no money, come, buy and eat. Um, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? You labor for that which satisfies not. That's those of you that are out, you know, trying to stir up people and saying, we gotta fix this, we gotta fix that. We're trying to fix all the problems, you know, on our social media and get information out there, information, information. But we find ourselves more starving than ever. You gotta, I'm not saying that all that's bad. You know, communication is helpful and information is, and teaching and instruction is good to a degree. But if that's all you're doing, your soul is gonna be starving. You gotta eat and drink of the Lord before you can go out and be effective in any other things. So verse three, incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant with you, uh, even the sure mercies of David. Man, I love this. The sure mercies of David. The covenant God makes with you is the same as the sure mercies of David. Did David need mercy? The answer is absolutely yes. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is all the characters of the Bible are not these stained glass, pristine, perfect people. You know, uh, it's the church that tried to saint everybody that made them sitting thus and, you know, all perfect and holy with a plate behind their head. That's just dumb. David was no saint. He was a sinner. He was an adulterer and a murderer and he did all kinds of evil stuff. But guess what? The Lord was merciful unto David. Why? because his mercy endures forever. You see, when I look at the Bible characters, I see people very much like us. You know, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, you'll see all these pictures of Peter 
glowing and all this, you know, the, the pontiff, the first pontiff, you know, and they make him into this sort of perfect guy. He was a loser, total loser. He, he betrayed Jesus. He, he ran and denied Jesus. Oh, but Brett, uh, he was a great guy. No, he even, do you remember Peter even had to be corrected even after he was filled with the Holy Spirit by Paul the apostle? Like Peter uh, was just like us. And I'm not trying to knock Peter or David. I'm just saying these were sinners just like us. And if there's hope for them, there's hope for us. We do a disservice in the liturgical church to sort of saint these people and make them seem as they were larger than life and better than us and all this. They, they were needing some serious mercy, just like you need mercy. So when it says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even as the sure mercies of David, remember when David finally confessed his sin before the Lord? And David said, oh, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old and I felt the heavy hand of God on me. But when I confessed my sins, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. That's you and me. We can say that as well. And that's what the Lord is promising to us. Filling those that are thirsty and hungry, but also mercy for the sinner. Good news. So the first section of this, verses one through three, is an invitation to come to the Lord, eat and drink and receive his mercy. The second part of this is, um, the second half of this chapter, I'm gonna say is verses four through 13, and it's salvation is available to all. And I love it, all meaning Jew, Gentile, anyone. Let's read, verse four. <clears throat> Behold, I have given him for a witness, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not of thee shall run unto thee because the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. All the nations are gonna run to the Jewish people. Why? Because Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus is the one who gives us the righteousness. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the bread of life. And that's what it's saying here, that the nations will run to the Jews. Verse six, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and add to our, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. <clears throat> this was a verse we looked at last Sunday as well. But seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, does that make anybody nervous? Because it, the implication is there's a time where you might not be able to find the Lord. When would that be? There's only one answer that I can think of, um, of where, why would the Lord not be there? Seek the Lord while he may be found kind of makes me a little nervous. Um, but um, one of the things that uh, th this sort of teaches us is that there is a point where the Lord will not always be there. And we learn a little bit of that in Genesis chapter six in verse three, it says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. My spirit shall not always strive with man. What's going on there? Well, Brad, I thought when you seek the Lord, you, you'll find the Lord, that's true. But there does seem to be a threshold where the Holy Spirit will stop tapping you on the shoulder. Um, those of you who know your scriptures, you know that the Bible teaches that there are relationships we have with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you. Before you were even saved, he's with you, convicting your heart that you need to be saved. 
Then once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. Um, and then Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is in you, but he shall be upon you. That's the Acts chapter two, the coming upon of, of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit. <clears throat> but the first one, the Holy Spirit is with you. That only happens um, when you're, you're or I shouldn't say only, but it, it happens when you're not even saved. But there comes a time and a place where the Holy Spirit will not strive with man. You don't want to get to that point, just a second. No, smoky in here. <laughs> um, now, um, so all that to say, um, uh, yeah, you want to, you, you don't want to push that threshold. If you're not saved and you're saying, oh, I'll become a Christian someday, maybe if I see something that makes me want to become a Christian, the Holy Spirit may not be striving with you at some point and you will be lost at that point. Um, well, Brett, do we know when that threshold is? We don't, but God does. So that's why I think this verse does put a little bit of a, a worrisome feel to it when it says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You don't wanna push that limit of God. Uh, be careful, unbeliever. Don't, don't play games with God because you might just wait too long. Seek the Lord. <clears throat> but I love the end of verse seven, for God will abundantly pardon. I love that. Uh, you know, the idea is that, um, you know, he will go over the top in forgiveness. I'm reminded of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal who spent all his dad's inheritance and he was living with the pigs, eating pig slop. And he comes back and says, I will be like one of the servants in my father's house. And I will confess that I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired slaves. Did the father do that? Okay, son, yeah, welcome home. You're a slave. Here's the chains and shackles, but you can live here now, even though you spend all my money. Is that what he said? No. You might say that the prodigal's father was abundantly pardoning him. Because not only did he forgive him, but he robed him with a robe and put a ring on his finger and killed the fatted calf and had a celebration because his son who was lost has now been found. And I hope you realize that's what this means. The Lord is quick to forgive. And when he forgives, he goes huge. The Lord never does forgiveness small. He abundantly pardons. Man, I've got those two words marked in my Bible because it makes me so happy to know that that's the God that we serve. He abundantly pardons. Verse eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, this, this verse here has so much, and this is one of those verses we've all heard and it's almost become trite for some of you that have been Christians for a long time. Yeah, his ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts are wiser than my thoughts, higher than heavens, yeah, yeah, yeah. But be careful. This is the thing where I see people, they fail when it comes to this. They, they say, well, how can the Trinity be true? How can God become a man, Jesus, and then Jesus talk to the Father which is in heaven, and yet there's still one being? My answer is simple. His ways are higher than our ways, higher than the, the, the heavens out of this world, his ability to be in more places than one at the same time, no big deal to him. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways. Once you get this, you realize that there's nothing too hard for God. And people try to figure out God, you know, they wanna, they wanna put him in a little box. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? People say, well, yeah, God can make, he can do anything, he can make a rock that, wait, wait, then he can't do it. Oh no, I no longer have faith in God because he may rock on that's too big that he can't lift. People get all up in a tizzy about stupid things like that. 
Um, and who cares about that? We just don't want to create these false dilemmas around God. And we know that God is omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent. He's, he's just all being in a way that we have no full way to fathom. Someday we'll see him and we'll understand. But it, this is the verse that kind of should remind you and me that we can't figure out God. Uh, forget our puny little brains. We're, we're still trying to figure out what oxygen really is. We're still trying to figure out how to put out forest fires. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how not to hate each other on this world. Uh, we, we're still romper room level stuff. Um, but God is high above the heavens. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. So don't get disillusioned when people raise questions that make you wonder, how can God do that? The answer, he's God, you're not, the end. Um, I love that. Verse 10, for as the rain cometh down, boy, that's what we're praying for right now. We're praying for rain here in Portland. Who would have thought a bunch of Portlanders would be praying for rain? <laughs> we were supposed to have rain Wednesday, and then they said, nah, it's gonna be Thursday. Now they're saying, nah, it's gonna be Friday, and it's gonna be like 20% chance. Uh, Portlanders are praying for rain. What a strange day that we're living. But for verse 10, as the rain cometh down, the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but watereth the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So that so shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Question, who used this analogy of um, the sowing of seed in verse 10 as compared to verse 11 being the word of God? <laughs> you guys know this. You know, um, Jesus talked about this. He gave the parable, you know, of the sower there in Matthew chapter 13. Um, and, um, and Jesus is just, you have to understand, when Jesus was teaching his parables, they perfectly aligned with these Old Testament passages like this. So Jesus didn't just pull these parables out of the air about the seed of God, the seed being the word of God, and he's sowing the seed and it bringing forth good fruit. Jesus didn't make that up out of thin air. He was using scripture uh, as his sort of premise. And it's here in Isaiah where we read tonight that, that, that the seed of the sower, verse 10, will give bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return void. Man, I love that about the word of God. Um, the word of God will not return void. That's one of the reasons why you and I should speak the word of God, not your opinion. I'm always amazed how quick we are to give each other's, uh, you know, our opinions. Um, but that your word will come back void. In other words, people will go, yeah, whatever. I don't care what you said. But I love when you speak scripture to a person. Um, and, and by the way, I, I fear that we uh, don't know scripture so we can't speak scripture to people. We gotta know scripture so we can speak scripture. But, um, you know, maybe there's a scripture that the Lord puts on your heart to share with someone. Maybe even from tonight, that's part of the fruit of tonight. You know, somebody says, I just don't understand how God could allow fires to burn in Oregon. And you can say, well, the Lord's thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways and we don't really fully understand God. And you just shared scripture with a person. Um, and that word will not go back, you know, come back void or empty or uh, to no value. The word has value and when you speak it, it's powerful. No matter when or how you speak it, the word of God is living and powerful. Um, so 
so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void. But what will it do? It will accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper the thing whereunto I sent it. The word of God in spoken will allow prosperity in the hearer. Speak the word of God. Man, I love that. And it'll bring good fruit. Um, Very important to speak the word of God. Um, Well, he goes on in verse 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hand. Um, This is, you know, when the Lord restores all things. This is speaking of the millennial kingdom when the mountains are gonna rejoice and the trees will clap their hands. And I always say it, if you wanna be an environmentalist, pray for the return of Christ, the second coming of Jesus, because that's when all the trees, you don't hug a tree, pray for the second coming of Christ and all the trees will be happy. Uh, That's gonna be great. Um, And verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up a fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So the Lord's gonna do all this stuff and it's coming for Jews and Gentiles, salvation and his millennial kingdom where Christ rules and reigns. So thus far we've covered chapter 54, salvation for Israel, chapter 55, salvation for the Gentiles. Now chapter 56, Gentiles included in Israel's blessings. Um, Some of your titles might say, happy state of the believers. Uh, Let's check it out. Thus saith the Lord, verse one of 56, keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. One of the things you and I should be doing in these last days as we feel like the time of the Lord is near is we should be keeping good judgment and doing justice. There's, There's a thing where when you see the world sort of tumbling in its evil and what it's, what we're seeing around us, there's a temptation to be evil and exchange evil for evil. You know, people are doing bad things. Why would we want to retaliate with bad things? What we are called to do in those times, right here in this first verse of 56, is to have good judgment and not to retaliate and not to lash back and be evil, evil for evil. But he says, keep you judgment and do justice for my salvation is near to come. Um, that's what you and I should be doing. It reminds me, you know, there, he has shown thee, O man, what, what the Lord requires of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's what we're called to do. Uh, I see the Christian church today being puffed up, um, lashing back, getting angry. Um, we need to be those that are doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. Well, blessed, verse two, is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing evil. Okay, so question, are we supposed to keep keep the Sabbath? I've done whole teachings on this. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, I did a series on the 10 commandments and you might check out the one on the Sabbath day. Talked about this, but I wanna mention this because this is something that pops back quite a bit. And you know, our Seventh-day Adventist friends tell us that, you know, If you were worshiping on a Sunday, you're taking the mark of the beast. Some of them say that. Um, And it's a big deal which day you're supposed to worship on and stuff. And the the bummer about that is people have sort of missed the whole point. Um, 
on this. By, by the way, jot down Exodus 31. In Exodus 31, this is where the, the Sabbath principle is really established uh, by the Lord. Exodus 31, 12, it says, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, verily my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, doth sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may they work, may thy work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath rest. Holy to the Lord, whosoever doth any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. This is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So you say, Brett, that sounds brutal. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're supposed to die. Well, this was the Lord putting the exclamation point on the Jews. This is one of the laws of the Jews. Well, Brett, it's part of the big 10 commandments. Yes, but this is specifically the covenant God makes. It says, my Sabbath, you need to keep it holy. Uh, and, and it's a perpetual thing for all the ages. So the Jews to this day are to keep the Sabbath. Well, what about us Gentiles? We are not under those laws. We are no longer, read the book of Galatians and Ephesians. We're no longer under those laws. So brother, are you saying we don't have to keep the Sabbath? Not like the Exodus 31, 12 through 17, where we'll die if we don't keep the Sabbath. Um, what does the Bible say? about the Sabbath. Well, let me just give you a few um, high points uh, that you need to remember. Re uh, the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse five says this. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What's he talking about? He's talking about disputes about which day is the Sabbath. Is it Saturday or Sunday? You know, the Jews, their Sabbath is, you know, from the sundown on Friday night, till the sundown on Saturday. That's their Sabbath. But the, the early church mixed with Gentiles and Jews, you know, they were saying, well, some people believe it's on Saturday. Some people say it's on, on, on Sunday. Why was the early church kind of using Sunday as their Sabbath? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus took place on the Sunday and they met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. So Brett, are you arguing for Sabbath being Sunday? Nope. It just says here in Romans, just be persuaded yourself on which day you keep holy. It sort of minimizes the whole stressful thing about it. You know, uh, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind what day they take as a Sabbath. And then you go to Colossians chapter two. And there Paul even takes more pressure off because people are saying, you need to keep the Sabbath and the festivals and the feasts, Gentiles. And they were getting down on the Gentiles for not doing it like the Jews were according to the Jewish laws of Moses. And Paul had to correct the Colossians when he said this. It's Colossians chapter two, verse 16. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in the respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. A shadow of things that are to come. The Sabbath day, the law of the Old Testament, the Jewish law, those are a shadow pointing to the real deal. What's the, what's the shadow of? It's Jesus. Um, and I've used the illustration, uh, you know, where, you know, what if a husband comes home from work and the wife runs out to kiss him and greet him, but instead of 
kissing him. She falls on the ground and kisses his shadow on the ground and says, oh, welcome home, honey. She's kissing the shadow. He's like, I'm right here. I'm, I'm here. That's, the, that's just my shadow. That's what Paul's saying. You guys are all wrapped up in this Sabbath, new moons, feasts, festivals, meat, drink, all this stuff. When Jesus has come and Jesus is the head of the church and Christ is here, we have him in the church. We have him in our hearts. And so we are getting caught up on the shadow when it comes to the Sabbath day issue. So as New Testament believers, there's a principle of the Sabbath that is so healthy for us to take a day, one in seven and take a day and rest and make it different than the others. But we are not under that law of the Sabbath like the Jews were of the Old Testament. Otherwise we all should deserve to die. If we were keeping the law of the Old Testament, we should all be dead right now. That's, that's the misnomer. We're no longer under that law. Praise be to the Lord for that. Well, he goes on in chapter 56, verse three. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord hath utterly separated me from, the, from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give my house within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and of the daughters. I will give them an everlasting name um, that shall not be cut off. What's that? The stranger and the eunuch. Those were people the Jews didn't allow to be in the temple to worship. Um, during the time of Christ, there was a fence around the court of the Gentiles and there was a placard that Herod the Great placed there and it said, any Gentile that crosses this line has only himself to blame for his ensuing death. <laughs> like you could die if you were a Gentile going into the temple of, of Jerusalem. Um, back in even Jesus's day. Here, Isaiah the prophet said, even the eunuch, the eunuch was a guy who they, they wouldn't let in because they thought he was less of a man because he'd been, you know, emasculated. And so they wouldn't let him into worship. Um, and the Lord's saying, let the stranger in, let the eunuch in, and I will bless them. This is an inclusion. This is God saying, I include the outsider. Um, not only the eunuch, but the Gentile or the foreigner or the stranger. The Lord says, that's what I'm gonna do. So I'm gonna give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I love that. Verse six, also the sons of the stranger, children of the Gentiles, uh, that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Um, who, who used that phrase, verse seven? Uh, mine house shall be a house of prayer. Je Jesus, of course, quotes this in Mark chapter 11. Um, and when he was turning the tables, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Where was Jesus when he did that? Remember the court of Gentiles I was telling you about where the Gentiles could be, but there was a fence? Jesus was standing in the court of the Gentiles. That's where the changers of money would sit. And Jesus blew them all away when he said this. The Jews would have been freaked out. We, we miss it as Gentiles. But for Jesus to stand in the court of the Gentiles and turn the table and say, make not my father's house of house of merchandise. He was calling the court of the Gentiles part of the father's house. We Gentiles are part of the family. Jesus is using this Isaiah chapter 56 passage of inclusion of the stranger. 
and including the Gentiles and the way for salvation for all the world. That's why it says it'll be a house of prayer for all people. All in the Hebrew here means all. That's us. That's beautiful. Verse eight, the Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. Um, All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. If you guys have a dog like that, (laughs) just wants to lay down and not, not bark and just kind of bag of bones. That's these, these watchmen. Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his gain for, from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Isaiah is talking about here a group of people that also fits today quite profoundly. These beasts of the field devouring and watchmen that are blind and dumb dogs that cannot bark and sleeping and lying down, greedy dogs never having enough. Who's he talking about? He's talking about leadership. He's talking about the leaders of Israel. And it says here that they, they all look to their own way. And that's the problem with leadership in America and around the world. There's corruption. People are looking out only for themselves, for their own best interests. And so um, the Jews had that problem then, we have this problem now. Human nature hasn't changed all that much in the last uh, you know, several thousand years. Um, people are sinful and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing all kinds of weirdness in leadership. People doing only what, what you know, helps themselves. Um, it's amazing to me how bold our leaders are being in those things. They say one thing and do another. Um, and you say, Brett, yeah, that's, preach it, man. Start calling names and start telling who those horrible leaders are. Well, they're everywhere, on all sides of the spectrum, on all sides of the political you know, world. And you say, Brett, that's pretty depressing. Yep, if you don't have Christ. Without Christ, that is depressing. The world is corrupt. There are a bunch of dead, lazy dogs looking out for their own interests. And that would be depressing if that's where we leave it. But God is coming. God is gonna intervene on humanity's behalf and he's gonna save those that are uh, whipped and beaten and brutalized. He's gonna forgive those that were evil and sinful and he's gonna bring in an everlasting righteousness and he's bringing his kingdom that's gonna come. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's gonna be the most glorious day. And if you think even for a minute that uh, the election coming up here in November is gonna solve all the problems, I don't think, by the way, I don't think there's many people that feel that. I think the world right now is holding their breath. What's gonna happen? Because no matter what happens with the election, everybody's freaked out. We see nothing but bad coming in our future right now. And you say, that's really kind of depressing. But see, maybe this is the Lord souring things on this earth so that you and I have a hunger for things of heaven. Set not your affections on things of this earth, but on things above. Our citizenship is not of this world, but we're citizens of heaven. Maybe this is the Lord getting his people to say, this is not my home, but heaven is coming. I pray that the fact that the Lord includes us as Gentiles into his righteousness, adopted sons and daughters, I hope that gives you great joy tonight because we have heaven to look forward to, eternal life through Jesus Christ. No matter how bad things get here on this planet, 
we have good things coming and we can put our trust in the Lord. Lord, we pray tonight that you'd help us to internalize that, to apply that. Lord, I pray for those that are thirsty, that they would come to the water and drink of the water of life. I pray those that are hungry, that they would eat of the bread of life, like Isaiah 55 says, that we wouldn't try to fill ourselves with things that are not really bread at all, but that we would would listen diligently to what you're saying to us. Um, Lord, I pray for those that are hurting tonight, people who've lost their homes, people who are questioning, wondering what's going on. Um, Lord, I pray for the disillusioned and the downtrodden. Lord, that you just wrap your loving arms around them. I pray that they'd sense that abounding mercy that you give to them, the forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. So bless your people tonight as we go our way in Jesus' name, amen.